I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Welcome to the broadcast, folks. This is Theology Unplugged. Michael Patton joined by Sam Storms and Tim Kimberly. Good to have you guys. How are you guys doing? Doing good. It's really good to be here. It is indeed. Good deal. You guys, uh, Sam, you, you've got a sucker. You like suckers? I was going to ask uh, about It's a Tootsie coffee. Roll pop, actually. Let's, let's be more How many looks does it take to get to the bottom of a Tootsie Roll pop? Uh, not nearly enough. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that commercial. And you remember that one that's just an old? Yeah, with yeah. the owl. Looks like the first commercial ever made. One, two, two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was on uh, last Saturday. I can't believe some of the commercials that they still have on. Yeah. Uh, Tim, you're not supposed to mention what we do. While we're doing these broadcasts, I mean, the people are just supposed to hear us, not envision us. Well, I was getting ready to say what licking kind of, on a tootsie roll pop. <laughs> I was going to say, what are you drinking as far as coffee to try to promote the Credo House a little bit? But, but I mean, uh, I've got an image to maintain, and my dignity just went down the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> tootsie roll, and, and you've got you've got four or five of them in front of you. Yeah, now but, I didn't put those there. Yeah. I just availed myself yeah. of one. Those are for my children coming, and then yeah. But Sam is uh, Sam using, just stole one, huh? He's using crayons too, which is kind of strange as well. But. <laughs> That's good. He carries them around in his back pocket. <laughs> I say nothing. <laughs> all right, all right. We are going to be dealing with a topic that comes out of Romans chapter 9. Lots of stuff we cover in Romans chapter 9, uh, uh, you know, including election, divine election, unconditional election, uh, reprobation, double reprobation, um, those types of stuff. But I want to deal with a specific passage um, that gives people trouble and and uh, and is I think you know you guys can correct me if I'm wrong here, but been recently kind of in the news because of a uh, of a gentleman that uh, Sam I think you know pretty well named Mark Driscoll, who uh, Driscoll Driscoll <laughs> I, I, I say Driscoll because I know him better you know? yeah <laughs> Driscoll yeah okay Mark Driscoll um, uh, where he talked uh, I think he did a sermon. And in the sermon, you know, basically said that God hates some of you here. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I remember watching the sermon, and I remember it making its way around, becomes viral. Everything he does becomes viral. So the nice thing about being Driscoll is that if you have a controversial thing that people are jumping at you on, uh, don't worry, wait till next week, it'll be gone, because the new one will come. Because <laughs> yeah. he, he can replace them pretty quickly. You think that was bad, wait till next week. <laughs> yeah, he, he faithfully proclaims the gospel, though, and teaches the word, so I well, love him. He, he talks about, uh, in, in the sermon, that uh, I think he says specifically in the, to the audience, God hates some of you. Mm-hmm. You know, which was, I, I think that's the first time I've ever heard that from the pulpit. Mm-hmm. Um you know uh, that God hates some of you. I mean, normally it's God loves you. God, God uh, wants you to be saved. God created you. His grace is here for you. Many kind words, but never something that is so prophetically forthright and condemning and offensive as saying that God hates some of you. Even though Jonathan Edwards might have been like, "Amen," <laughs> can I borrow that sermon and read it next week? Yeah, maybe so. He gets, but, but he gets a bad rep for that one sermon. Yeah, you know, sinners in the hands of angry God. 
and, and makes it seem like that was what he would say all the time. And yeah. I don't know if that is exactly what he would say. Sam would all be the, the best time. person yeah. to talk to about that one. And I think Driscoll's that way too. He's not. He's not speaking this way. Every, no, Dr- every Driscoll week likes either. to be shocking. But but here's the point of fact: is uh, whether Driscoll was trying to be shocking, whether he's trying to be provocative, whether he's trying to you know go viral, whatever. He's trying to preach, but he's also trying to make people think. And there is a passage in the Bible that specifically says this passage, and there's also another one that talks about God hating someone. But in this passage specifically, it's in Romans chapter 9. Tim, if you could read that for us, that'd be great. Yeah, uh, where should I back up to? I'll... um well, verse 12 and 13 is where it's just very close. Uh, she was told, uh, the older will serve the younger. So here, um, Sarah is, or Rebecca, here, I'll, I'll back up verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born. So that's key. Nine eleven. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Verse 12, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Okay, next week what are we going to be covering? That's the verse. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Does God hate people? Well, now where shall we begin? Let's let's start first of all by defining our terms. Most of us, when we use the word hate or hatred in normal conversation, uh, we mean something by it that I don't think is meant by Paul in Romans nine. Um, typically, human hatred uh, comes out of woundedness. Somebody has hurt me. Somebody has violated my rights. Somebody has betrayed a trust. And so I hate them in the sense that I want to get even, um, or I think they uh, deserve to suffer, or I want them uh, to endure um, pain in some capacity. In other words, it's born out of this human sinfulness that wishes evil on another because of evil that has been done to them. And the, and the thing we have to avoid is predicating of God or attributing to God the same motivation and the same definition of hatred that we ourselves experience. That, that's sinful. That's blasphemous. We have to be careful that we do not predicate of God human hatred because God is not acting or relating to people out of some sort of insecurity or woundedness or a low self-esteem. Um, so we have to be very careful. That and the we, key word there is reacting. Exactly, exactly. So let, let's, as difficult as it is for, for all of us to do this, I would encourage everyone who's listening, try to put out of your mind what you f- have felt in your life when you found yourself saying, I really hate that guy, or I really hate that girl, or I hate that politician. Uh, think about what's coming out of your heart and the reasoning behind it. And be very careful you do not predicate that of God. That's where we have to start. Um, if, if, in fact, God hates anyone in uh, some sense or definition of the term, it is, a react, it is, it is the uh, response of God to the violation of that which is beautiful and holy and lovely and righteous. 
So if God does not react to or, let's say, respond to the violation and the trifling with that which is holy and good and righteous, if he were indifferent, if he didn't care, if he didn't have uh, a response to those who trampled upon that which is good and true and holy, would we really want him as our God? Would we regard him as worthy of our devotion and our love? So it's kind of like picturing a God that lays on the couch and is zoning out at the TV and we're coming up to him with like, God, don't you care about this? Don't you care about this? Don't you feel any emotion because of this? And he just flicking the channels just like, eh, eh. You know, hate, yeah, it says, does, hatred is unworthy of me. I, I, yeah. you know, People will think ill of me if I respond uh, toward those who are uh, calloused and, and indifferent and and morally debauched. So I, you know, go go ask somebody else the question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, he's apathetic. He's just the watchmaker that just wound it up. He's the deist that just gets it started and then walks away and says, "You guys deal with this. I'm going on vacation. I'll see you at the end of the world." That's not our God. But Sam, it seems like you're saying though, uh, just to k- kind of put some flesh on this, that God is responding to uh, Esau. In hating him, in in some sense, that that he is executing some sort of emotional uh, justice for a, a, a correct wrong or something like that. It, it, are you, well, just because I think the problem, or and which is probably why that's not what you mean, mm-hmm. is because of of uh, verse eleven that this is before they're born and they've done nothing wrong. That so, if Esau has done nothing wrong. But then God is still acting against him in some way that is different than what I feel when I feel hatred. But in some way, he's still against him when he's done nothing wrong. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a difficult, but, <laughs> an interesting way of putting it, to say the least. Um, in, in in using the word response or reaction, what I'm trying to say is that I think divine hatred is the response of God's love for righteousness to the to that which or those who violate it or um, who are opposed to it. So in other words, God has such a passionate, intense love and zeal for truth and holiness and righteousness that when it is violated, the flip side to that love is opposition mm-hmm. to the enemies of it. That's what I mean by reaction to or response to. Um, now, some try to address this this problem and answer your question by saying well when it says Jacob I love but Esau I hated those are to be used comparatively in other words I loved Jacob more than I loved Esau that's that's what it means by to say that God hated him it really means he just loved Jacob more and then of course you have to ask the question why <laughs> on what grounds is that is that true and just and righteous yeah. and so on um, others say since this whole chapter is about election that what we really need to read there is Jacob I chose and Esau I rejected. And so, in other words, what people are trying to get away from is the idea that there is in the heart of God, in the depths of the divine being, a disdain for or a opposition to his creatures. That's what people don't like. So they say, no, God just chose Jacob and he rejected Esau. It's not because... He had any animosity in his heart toward Esau, or he just simply loved Jacob more than he loved Esau. So those are, uh, oftentimes you'll read explanations of this verse in that light. The problem is 
this, as you said, Michael, this isn't the only passage which says this. Mm-hmm. I mean, two that immediately come to mind are in the Psalms. In Psalm 5, we read, speaking of God, you just, uh, verse 5, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Which is interesting there because a lot of times people will say, well, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. But there he's not saying in Psalm 5, <laughs> I hate I hate the evil deeds of people. He's saying, I hate the evil doers. says the same thing in Psalm 11, verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Those are tough texts. So, so Driscoll could have been preaching from that psalm and say, look, this says that if you do evil, God hates you. But again, let's be sure that we're <laughs> defining the word hatred yeah. in, the, in a way different from uh, how people use it today when somebody uh, has done them dirty. Can a, <clears throat> can a parent hate a child and still love them? In this sense. I mean, are we saying, I mean, here's what we're going up against is this. Are we saying that God doesn't love everybody? Obviously, if he hates someone, hate is the opposite of love. That's what we often think. Hate being the opposite of love. And therefore, God, if he hates someone, doesn't love everybody. That takes care of that. God loves only certain people, but doesn't love all of his children. Well, let me – the next verse after this section, and, Michael, we, we teach together at the Creed House all the time, and I know you bring this up, so I'm kind of probably stealing your thunder a little bit. But in, I ain't got any thunder. <laughs> okay. So in, in Romans 9, uh, verse 14, so what Paul will do a lot is that Paul anticipates the questions that you're going to ask. And so Paul will say something, he anticipates, he knows what you're thinking, and then he'll deal with what you're thinking. And it and it's also sometimes a signpost that you're understanding it correctly. A lot of times as Paul's going through a lot of these reasoning. So after he has laid this bombshell of Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, his anticipation of the question is, what shall I say then? Is there unju- injustice on God's part? So he's kind of saying, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that God is not just. Now, if we interpret the verse of Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated, where we don't feel any injustice, where we say, oh, he's just he just loves Jacob so much more that it looks like hatred, but he still loves Esau too, but he just loves Jacob a lot more. Well, then Paul isn't going to anticipate that question. He's not going to say, oh, you don't have any questions here. Let's move on. Or he's going to answer the question really easily. Yeah, but he he comes out and says, I know you're thinking, is God unjust? And I think that – so for me, as I'm reading uh, verses 12 and 13, I should feel – some injustice that I'm getting close to what I should be thinking about how God is relating to these two people. Hmm. Can God love and hate at the same time? The same person? Yeah. In the sense that you're talking about it because you say separate this idea of hate and, and we think of it that way but I think we can love and hate people at the same time. I think that there can be this family type of bond with someone even though this someone has completely rejected there is a sense in which oh Jerusalem Jerusalem how I have longed to gather you together but I hate you because you have rejected me yeah again um, we have to be so very careful in the Mm -hmm. definition of our terms and I keep coming back to harp on this because um, 
I, all of the three of us sitting here talking about this, as well as everybody who's hearing us, has an idea of what hatred means, and it, it feels wrong. It mm-hmm. feels sinful to them because mm-hmm. they know it comes out of a heart that that uh, wants somebody to suffer because of what they've done to us. It's mean spirited. It's, it's uh, immature. It's often. selfish. It's revenge. It's revenge. Yeah, and it's and it comes from one evil person to another evil person. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a kind of hatred that comes from a holy person toward evil persons. Which we know nothing of because yeah, we've, we can't we've even, never we been can't holy. We can't even fathom what hatred coming out of a righteous, infinitely holy heart really means because yeah. when it comes from us, it's coming from those who themselves are wicked. We are morally reprobate apart from the grace of God. And so how we hate and what we mean by the term so discolors our understanding of these verses that we really have to proceed slowly in in defining our terms. Um, So the fact of the matter is, you know, when Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are all by nature children of wrath like the rest. He's describing Christians there who before they were born again and seated at the right hand of the Father in Christ and had the imputed righteousness of Christ granted to them as a gift, uh, I was the object of God's holy hatred. Am I any longer the object of God's holy hatred? No, because now I am in his Son, whom he loves uh, infinitely. So getting back to your question, Michael, can, can God hate and love the same person at the same time, I don't think I would say yes to that. I, I certainly think that that um, as my heavenly Father, he he does hate what I do. But I think because I am in Christ and uh, stand in the righteousness of His Son by faith alone, that whatever hatred I justly deserved was poured out upon His Son at Calvary. Well, I know that John Piper talks about this too, and he's one of the Calvinists who does not ascribe to the idea that God hates everybody. You know, he would say that there is a sense in which God loves everybody, even the unredeemed, even those people who are destined for hell, the people who are not gonna, not elect, not chosen, not Esau, the Jacobs, but he but he loves the unredeemed in some sense as well even though there is some sense in which judgment is going to sure. come upon them, and the judgment is going to be a judgment of the r- releasing of, of divine wrath, justice. And can't we call that, in that sense, hatred? I, th- I think we can, but I think, I think Paul... I'm not saying that you agree with John Piper. I don't know whether you agree with John Piper on that. Yeah. Sorry, go Of ahead, course Tim. he does. They're, they're so close to each other. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, but, uh, probably true. <laughs> uh, I think, though, Paul, he takes us down this path in Romans 9, though, because he says, you need to be thinking in justice here. Uh, I get it. You, that is, I'm leading you down this path of reasonably where you're going to get to a place and say, well, God must be unjust. And then he says, well, is he? Uh, then his response in Romans 9 is, no, he's not unjust. So for us, we are people who, who are exegetical, who exegete the Scripture, not uh, put our own thoughts into it, eisegete. And so what we do is we draw out of this, and what we have to do in our theology, in our view of God, is to say that it, God does hate some people. 
because he hates Esau. Now, what the, defining that term, what hatred... Is that all the unredeemed? Is that what we're well, talking about? Well, so let's say this. In hatred, whatever that looks like from a holy God, which is something we cannot relate to. So we know what... So words do have meaning. We know what hatred means. And we can't just say, well, you know, what it means to God and what it means to us is so different, so we can't have any meaning to words in the Bible. No, that's that's foolish. That's going too far. But words have meaning, and so God does hate Esau. But if you put God on trial for the hatred that he has for any human being, and you fully put him on trial, and you let the court system work, every single time he will be found innocent is what it means that he is just. And every single time we will be found guilty. Exactly. And then every... But every single time, will he be found loving of those people, too? That's the question that I Well, he will be found... Because I'm fine with it, as long as we're talking about the, 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 the divine wrath, his justice, that he's different, that that which comes from him that we call hate is a not, not the immature ones that we talk about. But also, I do see this within Scripture to where he does love his creation. But he does love his children. He, he, he does desire all to come to repentance... And and therefore, there is some sense in which, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed, yearned, wanted you. Esau, Esau, how I have longed, yearned, and wanted you to come to me, but you would not. But you say, did he love that person? And so I'm going to go back to like the Supreme Court justice idea, that if you have a Supreme Court justice who has seen the case of, of someone who is guilty— and 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 he wishes beyond all wish that that person was not in the courtroom, that that person did not do the things that they did, that in no way is is that justice, Supreme Court justice, finding pleasure in sentencing this one person who is rightfully guilty, and and maybe maybe it's let's say you know they would recuse or excuse themselves, but let's say it's it's even a child of the justice, and they went through with the case, and they find that person guilty, and as that justice is walking down the steps out of the courtroom, you could go up to him and say, uh, you would say, yeah, this person is a loving person, but then when you said, well, did you have love for that person that you? You found guilty, and the justice would say, "Well, uh, you know, in a sense, yeah. I mean, I do have love for this person, but you, but they could still find them guilty." So you're you know, saying God can love and hate at the same time? Well, yeah. I mean, so in the sense that they got what they deserved, that they were guilty, uh, but and the justice did not compromise their lovingness, their their the nature that they had of even being a loving person. See, so part of this is now we're having to move over into defining what you mean by love. Yeah. Because do you, are you, when you say that, can God love and hate somebody simultaneously, well, do you mean redemptively love? Uh, we know that God loves his creation because he created it. It's his handiwork. He shaped it. He sustains it in being. We know that he pours out uh, rain and, and sunshine and grants food and gives breath to every creature all of which is an expression of benevolence in his heart and of love and of patience and of kindness. Um, you know, so in that sense, yes, God loves all of his creation, including every creature. But if you mean redemptively love, does God set his saving love upon every human being? The answer is no. 
Because if he did, then every creature would be saved. And isn't that where we get back to where you said beforehand, there's these options up there. When we say, Jacob, have I loved, Esau, have I hated. In the context where you extract from God any type of rebellious, you know, I ground my kids anytime they say, I hate you. You know, that's Mm -hmm. automatic grounded. You know, you can't say that kind of stuff. Because we know the type of heart that comes from, the type of immaturity. We extracted that from God. That is not what God is. And once you do, and then you, you say, well, in what sense then... Did he hate him? Doesn't it come down to not expressing for unknown, uh, secret, mysterious decree of God not electing him? I mean, isn't that the expression of that? Leaving him in his depravity, in his rebellion, in his enmity, that is the expression of hatred, and that's how he hated him. And that's the best we can do to be able to pull that in, is to say the hatred is defined not by emotion, Emotional immaturity, but by well, that's a great point. I but but so let me make sure I understand what you're saying. So you're saying that it it the hatred here is a choice, a decision by God uh, in terms of what He wants to accomplish in redemptive history, in saving the elect and passing over the non-elect. Yeah. That is one way of reading the text, as I mentioned earlier. But you just used, I, I want to press you on this, Michael, not because I disagree with you, but I think we need to think about it. Are we saying then, or are you saying that the hatred that God had for Esau did not entail feeling? That there was no, in the sense of uh, uh, passion or emotion in, you know, for some theologians want to deny that God has passions or emotions. Um, I, I think they're wrong. I think he does. Their holy emotions and holy passions. So, what did God in choosing not to elect Esau? What did God feel in the making of that choice? Well, I, I think that you could say, let's say that God didn't redeem anybody; He never chose anybody. I would say that that would leave them in the state of necessary hatred, which involves judgment and God's reaction towards sin, which is going to be an emotional reaction, mm-hmm. and that that sin has infected us, and so that is us. And so I think you guys may be right. You know, I have to think about that more. Where He says, "You say He actually hates the person, not just the sin." That that's that's interesting. I. I You know, just have to think about that. But maybe that's it. Maybe it's because intrinsically we are sinners and leaving us in that state is a state of necessary judgment, necessary hatred, even though there is this longing for his creation. Mm And in a, a motherly sense, because that's what we want to keep on ascribing to God, I think. And so what I want to, I want to keep on seeing God as someone who, who has, like I have for my children. Well, and I think the huge thing to miss, though, is the final solution, and that is where Romans 9 takes us, is that because God has this love that he is able to even give his son, and that he is giving his son, and this is where Romans 9 takes us, is it takes us at verse 32, they did not pursue it by faith as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And then it goes into verse or chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they 
have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And then verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and a seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So I think ultimately God, out of this love, gave the most precious thing that he could ever give to, to humanity, and, and, and those who do not bow their knees say, no thanks. No thanks, I'll find my own way. I don't want to have anything to do with the greatest thing that you've ever given up for, for my soul, and no thank you, I'm, I'm but, on my but, own. But he didn't do that for Esau. I mean, at least for us as Calvinists, he didn't really but, give his son up for Esau. He left Esau in the state of hatred. Even though, I, like, like I'm saying, and it was just that he did exactly, and that's why Paul uses him as an example, though. And so, and I think Paul's purpose is not for us to dwell on Esau. I mean, which it's it's fair too, well, it's theological. The shock value. I mean, he has one shock value after another within this. I think to just yeah. escalate the deal to where we we back up and put our hand over our mouth. Exactly, but I think the greatest shock value that climaxes in the story is the shock value that there is a solution uh, of of finding. Uh, of God finding you to be righteous, and that is Christ. Well, the solution is to put your hand over your mouth and to bow your knee to Christ. Yeah. Let, let me just say, while we're coming, kind of coming to the end of our time, and I want to say one more thing. It's very, very important. We come to we come to this passage. You know, here we're talking about our whole series is on problem passages, and we're saying it's a problem that God hated Esau. Does that not itself reveal the distortion of our perspective? Isn't the real problem that God loved Jacob? Now, I mean, seriously, I'm not trying to be cute with that. If you know anything about Jacob, the deceiver, he was a, a, a depraved, wicked man. And I look at this, and I, and I don't just think of Jacob, I'm not singling, singling him out. We could put your name in there, put my name in there. Put Tim. Well, I don't know if we put Tim's name. Yeah, in. yeah we put Tim's name yeah. in there. I, I'm not bothered. And people may think I'm sick in saying this. I'm not bothered by the statement Esau I hated. I am left breathless with Jacob I loved, knowing the holiness of God as as little as we do, infinitely righteous and pure, transcendent beauty that he could get the consent of his holy will to set his affection on a scurrilous reprobate like Jacob or like me or like you, that's what ought to shock us. We just take for granted that God ought to love fallen sinners. What God ought to do in terms of strict justice is to condemn us all to eternal damnation. The fact that God chose to, to be moved by affection and compassion and kindness toward anyone is a remarkable reality, given who we are. So I'm less, and I'm not trying to evade the, the issue before us, but I, honestly, I'm less bothered by Esau I hated than I am by Jacob I loved. Let me evade it even further myself, you know, just to end it is where I say... <clears throat> In order to, at the end, say to God, God, there's unrighteousness in you because of this. God, there is injustice in you because of this. We have to borrow from his righteousness in order to judge him. You know? Yeah, precisely. And so, I mean, that's who are you to answer back to God in such a way. 
and that does give me comfort in the end because I, in the end I'm saying, wait a minute, you know, he knows this stuff better than I do. My my, my level of love and my level of righteousness is not going to look down upon him ever. You know, mm-hmm. it can't. It's impossible. And so that's one of these many things that we come to whenever we see God and he does things and we say, well, I want to really do that, you know, if I were God and, and I wouldn't act that way. There's so many times in our lives, I mean, whether it be in our personal lives or reading through scripture or our doctrine, where we just have to turn around and say, God, you got it figured out. And I really do trust you. Mm-hmm. And, and he's saying, hey, guys, really, can you can you really trust me? I'm not going to tell you everything because I want you to trust me in this. I want you just to put your hand over your mouth and know that I know what I'm doing. I agree. He knows what he's doing. He does. Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. Um, I don't know if I would during a sermon say <laughs> God hates some of you here. But uh, it does spur some thought on Sam, thanks for joining us. It's good to be here. Looking forward to the next one. We will uh, see you guys next week. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening and God bless.